of the Black Bibles that is provided there. Uh, you'll find today's text on five, page 582, 582 of the Black Bibles that are provided. And we're going to be considering really the last part of chapter 10 all the way through chapter 11. Um, as we started this passage last week, we were reminded that this really, chapters 10 and 11 is one event, and uh, we kind of breaking it up a little bit just because there's a lot of material to cover. So Acts chapter 10. You remember last week that we met a Roman centurion named Cornelius, who was, verse 1 tells us, a centurion of the Italian regiment. He was a man who feared God and he was seeking after God. God chose to bless that search by sending to him Peter. Now, he had to do some preparatory work in Peter's own heart. And so about that same time, God is showing Peter a vision of these animals coming down in a sheet. He tells Peter, arise and eat. He has Peter and, and God have a little bit of a, a conversation there, argument, you might say. And, uh, and then God gives him the admonition there in verse 15, do not call common what I have cleansed. And so we, we saw the preparation of Peter, we saw the preparation of Cornelius, and we now see that Cornelius has, has sent messengers to summon Peter, as he was told to do, which really brings uh, Peter uh, to Cornelius' house in the middle of chapter 10. And we will pick up our reading, if you would please, in verse 34, upon Peter's arrival at Cornelius' house. Uh, Cornelius's house. So here we are in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. And we will read through the end of the chapter, follow along as I read aloud. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began in Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of these things, which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judged of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. When Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And Peter, then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they asked him to stay 
a few days. So this brings us up to the point where we were last week. Uh, last week we considered uh, what God was doing as the gospel was, was reaching out into this, this territory that had previously really been unexposed to the good news of Jesus Christ. And we're reminding ourselves of the power that, that Paul spoke about in Romans 1. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And so throughout this entire passage, we were being reminded that the gospel's power overcomes human frailty. The gospel's power overcomes human frailty. Now, in this text of scripture, in what ways do we see the gospel overcoming human frailty. Well, in verses 1 through 8, we are compelled to trust the gospel to overcome ignorance. So in cha- so we met this man, Cornelius, right, in chapter 10. We learned that, that he was, although a sincere man, was, was ignorant. He did not know what he needed to know to be saved. And we reminded ourselves that, that God rewards the seeker. If someone is genuinely seeking after God... Of course, we know that this is all initiated by the Spirit, right? No one naturally seeks after God. But if one is seeking after God, being honest with the truth that they have been given, then God will, in his mercy, give them further truth, lead them into further truth. And so this is what is happening here with this Roman centurion named Cornelius. He is seeking, he is praying, he is doing good for others, and God rewards that by sending to him the, the more truth that he needed, the greater revelation. And we were reminded in that that we too are to trust the gospel even to overcome ignorance. Now, I'm not using ignorance in a pejorative, condescending way. I'm just simply referring to the fact that there are things that we don't know, right? There are things that we are ignorant of. And so as we trust in the gospel, as we, as we pursue God, he is a rewarder of that. He, he gives us what we need at the time that we need it. And be encouraged as well, those that are around you, that are within your sphere of influence, as they seek after God, as they respond to the conviction of the Spirit, God may even use you to give that further truth that is needed. And as people seek after God, what a blessing it is for us to be, to be carriers of the gospel to be the truth givers to those that are seeking truth. This is how Peter is being used in this passage. And so we can trust the gospel. We can trust the gospel to teach us to overcome our ignorance and the lack of knowledge, even amongst our unbelieving friends who are genuinely seeking after God. We see in this passage as well that we are to trust the gospel to overcome law. I mean, really, this is... the the tectonic shift that is taking place in chapters 10 and 11, that that there is a radical change in the relationship with the law. And we see this here beginning in verse 9 of chapter 10. Peter is on his housetop at the sixth hour at noon, and he becomes hungry, and God sends him a vision, right? We We talked about this last week. There's this sheet that comes down from heaven. In this sheet are a various, a sundry, types of animals and the voice of god says to peter peter arise and eat and he says very ironically lord lord no 
right? I mean, you're Lord, you're the boss, but, but no, 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 that this isn't right. No, I can't do that, right? Nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. And so this is, this is uh, kind of from a gut reaction. Peter is, is resisting this change that is taking place before his very eyes in the economy of God, how God is working. Right? Most of these th- many of these beasts would have been ceremonial, ceremonially unclean under the Mosaic law and forbidden to eat, but, but, but God is making a change in relation to the law. Now, we spent considerable amount of time on this, even developing the New Testament theology of how we relate to the Old Testament law, because we were reminded that the law has value. But at this point in redemptive history... The, the value of the law, although still standing, has, has completely changed in relation to the law. And this is why the New Testament repeats several times. You are not under the law, you are under grace. We are in a new economy, we are under a new relationship with the law, and we see this several places. And in fact, I mentioned last week, I'll mention again as we continue in this text, if you really want to see an unfolding of this, an unpacking of this, kind of the theological textbook that explains everything that we're seeing in chapters 10 and 11 and a few of the chapters following, you really want to think about the book of, anybody remember? Galatians, right? I mean, Galatians is the theological treatise on what has changed. You could also be thinking about Hebrews, would have been an appropriate answer as well. Right? Now, Jesus has come, and Jesus is better. That doesn't mean that the old economy was bad. It doesn't mean that the law was bad. The law had a legitimate function, a, a, a valuable purpose. But that purpose is past because the new model's out now. And so why would you go back to your clunker? I mean, your clunker got you from point A to point B. It served a purpose. It, it was good. It was reliable. But now the new model's out, and it's better. And that's the whole theme of the book of Hebrews as well. Jesus is better than the law. And this is the, the change that we're seeing. We're seeing a real shift in gears here in chapters 10 and 11, and so the gospel overcomes law. We'll see that further as we go through this passage of Scripture. And so Peter's learning this very, very important lesson that the dietary restrictions have been suspended because they did not relate to objective filth. They related to ceremonial uncleanness. This is Jesus' argument in Mark 7, right? Whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him. So God is timeless, but he works differently in different ages. And so we see this major shift from the old covenant, the Mosaic law, to the church age, the age of grace. Christ abrogates the law. The gospel of grace repeals the Old Testament law. Peter learns it here, and then it becomes repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament. So the lesson that we learn from that is the gospel triumphs over legalism. There is no standard. There is no list of rules. There is no man-made system that will merit standing before God. But this really is the fallacy of man-made religion, is that if I keep this list of things, I will then be pleasing to God. 
And of course, we're reminded by, by both Jesus and then following the New Testament writers that that really wasn't the point of the law in the first place. And this is why now he's taught, he's, we start seeing terms in the New Testament like, like spiritual Israel and circumcision of the heart, right? This kind of language reminds us that, that really the purpose of the law was not so much external conformity, but it was to confront the heart, which is why Paul says it was what? A schoolmaster. Remember this? To bring us to Christ. So the law's function was not what so many want to make it. You have to do this and this and this in order to gain standing before God. And, and we can kind of summarize all that with Paul's statement in Romans 3, right? Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without, apart from, the deeds of the law. And so we warned ourselves against dietary legalism. Right? A, a false spirituality that says, I am somehow more godly because of what I do eat or what I don't eat. Right? But then we warned ourselves also against a broader legalism. Uh, just the legalism that just in general says that I, I merit standing before God. I am closer to God. I am more spiritual. I am more godly because of, because of whatever my list of rules is. And so... We see the gospel overcoming the law. Which brings us now to the second part of this text of Scripture, where we learn that we can trust the gospel to overcome prejudice. So last week we got as far as verse 15 of chapter 10. God had been preparing two men, Peter, a dedicated Jew, and Cornelius, a Gentile. He'd been preparing them to meet each other. And so what happens in the last part of chapter 10 Chapter 10 literally changes the church forever. The church is never the same after chapter 11. This is a major shift. And in it we see the gospel overcoming prejudice. Most of you will know the name of Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi... Uh, wrote in his um, autobiography that he was a student in England. And as he considered different religions of the world, he, he really grappled with the truth of Christianity. You see, he actually read the Gospels. He, he seriously considered them, and, and he was contemplating the claims of Christ, of Christianity. And so one Sunday, he chose to attend a church service and talk to talk to the preacher um, to get further understanding of the doctrines of Christianity. But when he arrived in the back of the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go somewhere else and worship with his own people. He never came back. I think that's fairly obvious if you know anything about Gandhi's life. He said it this way, if Christians have a caste system also, or if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. The gospel actually has the power to overcome prejudice. Now, sadly, those that he encountered apparently had not let the gospel permeate and affect them. But the gospel itself 
has the wherewithal, it has the power to break down human barriers. So look with me in chapter 10 and verse 17. Peter is now wondering, what is this vision all about? Peter wondered within himself what this vision had meant. While he was doing this, two men who had been sent from Cornelius made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. So in those days, they would have had this courtyard surrounding the house. Outside the gate, they had not been admitted yet, were these men that Cornelius had sent to, to call Peter to come to them. And so in verses 18 through 23, these messengers explain everything that happened uh, and, and, they, and Peter agrees to accompany them the next day. But don't miss this little note in verse 23. He, Peter, invited them in and lodged them. I mean, did you catch that? Peter invited them in and lodged them. You say, big deal. No, no, wait a minute. Peter, like the Jew of Jews, pure. Lord, I won't eat that because that nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. He lodged, he hosted, he entertained Gentiles. Now, we may not fully capture the impact of it because we have a hard time getting in the mindset of those Jewish people. But the fact is, this would have been unheard of. This would have been remarkable for a, a pure, unadulterated Jewish man to invite into his, ho his home. And in fact, it says in chapter 11 that he, he entertained them. And in fact, when you read chapter 11, you realize this is what other Jewish Christians are wagging their fingers at him about. They're saying, you invited Gentiles into your house to eat with you, to entertain them. And so... So what's happening here is this change in Peter's own heart. Peter, an observant Jew, uh, welcomes these unclean Gentiles. He shares food with them. He's hospitable to them. And it seems that the meaning of this, this great sheet, this vision, is beginning to dawn on Peter. It wasn't just about food. It was really about the body of Christ. It was really about God, what God was doing to extend the fame of Jesus to people from every tribe and tongue and nation, all races, all classes, without distinction. And in fact, when Peter arrives at Cornelius' house, that's exactly how he words it. So go down with me, chapter 10, verse 34. He arrives at Cornelius' house, verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And then he preaches the truth of Jesus. I mean, did you notice that as we read through it? That he really rests, that he starts the introduction, the sermon introduction with, God wants to save everyone. God, the gospel has gone out to everyone. And then he preaches Jesus, which is the reason that the gospel can go out to all. And so here in chapter 10 and chapter 11, we meet the very first Gentile Christian. 
the first Gentile believer. And this is why I say that never again will the church be the same. Because up until this point, there was not a single Gentile that was, uh, was a believer. Now, there may have been a few uh, Gentiles that, that, that maybe believed in Christ during his life and ministry, but as far as in the church age, this seems to be the first one. Up until that point, the church was, was pretty much exclusively Jewish. And after this point, it very quickly becomes predominantly Gentile, does it not? And even to this day, is predominantly Gentile. So in verse 46, it says, They heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Now, don't forget the theological context, right? When do miracles occur during redemptive history? We've talked about this before, okay? Miracles occur as evidence of new revelation, right? When God is doing something new, when God is making a, a dramatic change, he sends signs and wonders to authenticate those changes. And by the way, this is why theologies that believe that God is still giving revelation today are linked to theologies that believe in signs and wonders. They, they go together, right? But if you believe that the scripture is sufficient, that it is all we need, that for the church in this age, that, that the scripture is all we need is sufficient, then we no longer need the authentication of new revelation. God is not giving new revelation today. He is working through his word by his spirit to confirm what has been told to us about the person and work of Jesus Christ. All right, so that's kind of the theological context. And you'll remember just a few chapters ago that the evidence of the giving of the spirit amongst the Jewish believers were these same signs. And so, you remember as we read through here, uh, here in, in, chap in, in chapter 10, that they're astonished. And they can't believe it. What? The Holy Spirit is given to Gentiles? Minds are blown. I mean, this is unfathomable. Is this what Jesus meant when he said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth? Surely not. But they're watching it happen before their very eyes. And so Peter says in verse 47, can anyone forbid water that these should be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have and commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord? Okay, so Peter makes this argument. Like, this is what God is doing. We've seen the Holy Spirit come down on Jewish believers, and we're now seeing the same thing happen with Gentiles believers. This has been authenticated. We've seen it. There are witnesses here. And so they're now baptized, which, of course, you know, baptism is, in the New Testament, the testimony of the one being baptized to identify them with Christ. But you'll notice here, too, it is actually also the church's affirmation that this, we believe this to be a credible profession of faith. You see what I'm saying? Like the church is actually affirming their claim, their, their profession of faith in Christ by baptizing them. That's actually a, a, an aspect of baptism that doesn't get talked about a lot. Right? The church does not save people. It does not 
confer grace on people, but, but the local church does have a responsibility to, to vet and affirm genuine conversions as best we can from a human point of view. So that happens at the point of baptism, but then it happens on an ongoing basis in the New Testament through commitment or accountability to a local assembly. And we would probably call that church membership. Uh, there is no such thing in the New Testament of a believer, someone who is following after Jesus Christ, who is this kind of lone ranger Christian out on their own. They're always committed to an assembly of believers. And then they ask him to stay a few days. Now, don't miss the point here. The gospel is overcoming human barriers. It is overcoming prejudice. It is overcoming the divide between Jew and Gentile. And this is a theme that Paul is going to develop as the apostle to the Gentiles very thoroughly throughout his writings. And this is something that really should be woven into the depths of our soul as well. That God cares for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That God is doing a work to save people of all ethnicities. Thomas Walker was a missionary in India. He lived in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. And, and as when he was writing on the book of Acts, this passage of scripture, he says this, The race spirit and the caste spirit are both contrary to the Christ spirit. Now the church should understand this especially Gentiles who are part of the church, should understand God's heart for the nations. I mean, that's what Gentile means. It means nations. The Greek word is the, is the word from which we get our word ethnic. All ethnicities, all people, all nations. I mean, if that weren't the case, we wouldn't be here. If it weren't for the fact that God has a heart for all people of all nations, you and I would not be saved. And so we should understand this well. The sad thing is it doesn't take an extensive look at church history to realize that the church has done a really poor job with this over the centuries. That, that the church has, that, that we as believers have allowed the world's way of thinking to creep into our own thinking. It, that, that the, the world divides people up. It divides them up by, by how they look. It divides them up by, by ethnicity and by skin tone and by, by uh, family pedigree and by economic status. And, and the world divides people up by these superficial barriers. Unfortunately, we too often are tempted to think like the world. When instead, the church, believers, should reject that knowing some, some very foundational theological truths. First of all, that we are one race. God created one race, the human race. Are there some variations within the human race? Sure. But we are one race. We are all sons of Adam. But then furthermore, when we think about the power of the gospel... 
that makes it doubly so. Because Jesus Christ died for people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And we see this whole theme crescendo, right? It starts, it starts in Matthew. Well, yeah, there's hints of it all throughout the Old Testament, right? Because you go all the way back to Abraham, right? From you, Abraham, from your seed will what? All the nations of the earth be blessed. And I don't think that the Old Testament uh, saints really totally understood that. But when we see Jesus, who is the blessing to the earth, he is the fulfillment. He is the means by which Abraham's seed is now a blessing to all the earth. So we see it in the development in the Old Testament. We really see it crescendo in the New. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, all the way until we go to the book of Revelation. And what do we see? Before the throne of God. People from every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation. And so you and I will be in heaven worshiping with people that on this earth might have, might have been looked different than us, that might have been from a different background than us. And really, that's what to the church, even on earth, the church today should reflect, is that priority that the gospel, that the gospel uh, goes above, it, it, it trumps all of those artificial divisions. The church should understand this. You and I should understand this, and we should be thankful that the gospel overcomes prejudice. We see then finally that the gospel overcomes division. God has given repentance to the Gentiles, we see in verse 18. Excuse me, we see there in the, in the last part of chapter 10. But as we move into chapter 11, those that are back home hear the news, Right? See, chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter, how dare you? What are you doing? You are, you are fellowshipping with uncircumcised, and they actually contend with him. Now, chapter 11 is, by and large, a repetition of everything we just read. So I would encourage you this week to take some time to read through all of chapters 10 and 11. I'm not going to take the time to read all of chapter 11 this morning. Just simply suffice it to say there's some details in there that are not in chapter 10 and vice versa, but it is, in, in large part, Peter's repetition of everything that just happened. And the conclusion in verse 18 is when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. They basically say, oh, okay, this is a work of God. Uh, okay, Peter, we, we get it. Right? This, God is doing something special here. In fact, something far beyond we, what we could even have anticipated that the gospel is going out now even to the Gentiles. Now, don't misunderstand. The church, <laughs> the church is going to continue to struggle with this. I mean, if you re continue to read through the book of Acts, you're going to see that how this theology gets worked out, really, there's some growing pains here. Like, this theology of 
the gospel reverberating out to the Gentiles is really going to be a struggle for these Jewish believers in particular. The question, you know, to what extent do Gentiles have to submit to the law to become Christians? I mean, this is a a vexing question that the early church, this is what the Jerusalem Council here in a few chapters is all about. Like, How does this work? Because keep in mind, everyone who had been a, become a follower of Jesus Christ up to this point had for their whole lives, in fact, for their family history for centuries, been fastidiously following the law. Now, what do we do with these people who are pagans? <laughs> like they've they've not ever been under the Mosaic law. Like, do they have to come in through the like gate of the Mosaic law to get to Jesus? How does this work? The church really struggled with this. They grappled with it. They had conflicts over it. In fact, do you remember Paul confronts Peter? Boy, can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine those two guys? I mean, these are not guys with weak personalities. Can you imagine Paul confronting Peter? Now, we actually don't see it recorded in Acts. We see it over in Galatians 2 when Paul says, I withstood Peter to the face, which basically means I stood toe-to-toe him and I gave him what for, right? And, and you know Paul just seems like such a timid guy. Yeah, not really. Right? So he said, and why was he confronting him? He was confronting him because Peter wasn't living out the theology that he was preaching. And he calls him out on it. He says, now Peter, I'm paraphrasing. This is the, this is the JV, the Jeremy version, right? It, it, and, and Paul stands up to him and says, Peter, you're a hypocrite. You say this theologically, but you're not living it. You're contradicting it with with what you do. So Paul and Peter are going to even have some sparring over this question. And it's interesting to note that after this point, right about chapter 13, the focus totally shifts. The church in Jerusalem, which really has been the center of attention for all of our study, it's almost like a footnote. Now, why is that? I don't know that I fully have the answer, but could it be that, that the church in Jerusalem just never really got their head wrapped around this idea of the gospel going to the Gentiles? I mean, is it possible that these, these prejudices that they had so deeply woven into them, just they just never fully got over? And so what happens in the book of Acts is this shift, Right? So, like, the, the church in Jerusalem is the, the center of attention, and then all of a sudden, bloop, over here to Antioch. And that becomes the epicenter for the spread of the gospel to the world. And we're not really given a total explanation, but it sure seems like they really had a hard time with chapters 10 and 11. And so, I don't know what God's thinking. Maybe God just decided, okay. Now this is the center of activity for the gospel. Kind of, kind of seems that way. And then there was this also this, this, this false teaching that plagued the early church. Ever heard of the Judaizers? The Judaizers were the guys that continued to teach, 
legalism. They continued to teach that you had to submit to the Mosaic law in order to be eligible to be saved. It was, was kind of a, a short, down-and-dirty version of the theology. Right? So it was legalism in its, in its purest sense. And the Judaizers were really a, a thorn in the side of Paul. Right? And so this, these, these questions, these struggles would continue to, to plague the early church. So it's not like, you know, chapters 10, 11, boop, okay, problem solved, now let's move forward. This is still going to be a, a vexing question for the early church. By the way, does it disturb you at all when I say that the church, the early church, had to wrestle through theology, had to kind of figure out their theology, that they even had conflicts over their theology? But I guess that's kind of the point, isn't it? The point is, we're going to have divisions. We're going to have struggles. We're going to have things that we may not agree on. We might have divisions. But the gospel should be able to override all of that. The gospel works in and through us to make us new people so that we can extend grace to one another so that we can have conversations with one another about what God's word is teaching and how we can be faithful to what God is teaching. And so the gospel overcomes division, and we are to trust the gospel to overcome division. As I think about applying this, I rejoice that God has given grace to Gentiles. That God has extended to you and me who are, as we just read in our previous passage, unworthy. We were outside of the economy of God. We were were foreigners. We were strangers. But God extended grace to us. And so because of that, what is our responsibility? This takes us back to the beginning of Acts, right? Acts 1.8. The good news of Jesus, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria uttermost parts of the earth. And my friends, because God has extended grace to those of us who were who are not part of the chosen, should we not then be motivated to give this good news to others? And so the question for us is always to revisit, how am I doing with being faithful to preaching the gospel, to telling the gospel to other people? What have I done this last week to build that redemptive relationship with my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers? What am I doing to, to forge opportunities? And then as I recognize those opportunities, am I being faithful to give the gospel to others? That's a clear application to this passage of Scripture. That's what we've been singing about and thinking about throughout our time of worship. But then I want us to meditate again on the passage that we read for our call to worship in Ephesians 2. If you care to turn in your Bible, you may. You'll see it here on the screen as well. And Paul really reminds us of some important things here in Ephesians 2, verses 11 and and following. He says, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, right? So Paul is writing to a largely Gentile audience now. The gospel has gone out to non-Jews He's you were once Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by the Jews, made in the flesh by hand. So you, you were spiritually 
strangers from God. You were foreign from God. You were Gentiles. Remember that. Don't forget that. That at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Having no hope without God in the world. Without Christ, we are pagans. We are separated from God. And so that, that is, it is important for us to recognize this, to be thankful for this. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. God was doing a specific work at a specific time with a chosen group of people, and we weren't part of it. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus. I mean, those right there, the, the, the passage hinges on that, and that is wonderful. But now, you were over there, you were far away from God, you were a stranger, you had no partaking in the economy of what God was doing, but now through Jesus Christ, you have brought, been brought near. Now don't miss this, because this is the heart of the gospel. The Bible makes it clear that every one of us are separated from God at birth. We are, we are sinners. And because of that sin, we are deserving not, of separate, not only of separation from God in this life, but from, the life, from him in the life to come. That's what we deserve. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve because of our sin. We can be made right with God, but not through what we do. All right? What did verse, what did verse uh, 12 say? Having no hope and without God in the world. And by the way, that's the first thing you have to realize if you are going to be genuinely converted, is that you are without hope. But now in Jesus Christ, those who were once far off, those who were once far away, those who were once aliens and strangers are made near, brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh, to pay the payment that you and I deserve to pay on our behalf so that through him we can have forgiveness of sin. For he himself, verse 14, is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. We can be put in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Having And, and, and then verse 15 further develops what we were talking about last week about the relationship with the law, having abolished in the flesh the enmity, having, having put away the thing that is a signpost that we are separated from God, namely what? The law of commandments in ordinances. He abolished the law. He defeated the law. He made the law unnecessary so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we have both access by one spirit to the Father. And so this is a wonderful passage that I think we should just, in, in our closing moments, be thankful. That God broke down that wall. That God gave repentance to Gentiles. That the word of Jesus Christ might go forth throughout all the world. So this morning I would ask you, have you accepted that free gift? Has there ever been a time when you have repented of your sin and you have turned to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Today can be the day that you do that if you never have. Any of us who are members of North Hills would be happy to sit down with you, take a Bible, and um, answer any questions that you might have. My Christian friend, what are you doing to be faithful to that message of grace that was extended to you? How are you faithfully taking that message to the ends of the earth? Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you for the fact that you have saved us in your mercy, given us grace. Help us now as we continue to think about these verses throughout the week. May we be reminded and thankful for you breaking down that wall. Just a moment, I'll conclude in prayer.